Good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to be together in Matthew chapter 25, um, and I'd love it if you would go ahead and find that in your Bible. I'm going to begin this morning in Revelation 19, but you can hang out in Matthew 25. We'll put these few verses from Revelation 19 on the screen for you because we're going to be there just for a brief moment before we get to our text this morning. As we begin today, what I hope to do is is simply to lay before you an idea that I think will help us to understand what we need to hear from God's word this morning. And so here's the idea. This is like I just humbly hope to bring this to you as we begin together today. The idea is this. The view of Jesus that many of us walk through life with It does not adequately prepare us well for the Jesus that we will encounter upon his return. Let me just say that again. The view of Jesus that we walk through life with, it does not prepare us well for the Jesus that we will actually encounter upon his return. Typically, our view of, our understanding of Jesus is, well, I mean, if I was going to find one word for it, it would be the word soft. Like often our our view of Jesus is of the Jesus who came as this sweet, adorable little baby. And we, we sing songs about the fact that he did not cry when he was away in that manger as if there has ever been a baby that didn't cry. But that's the kind of idea that we attribute to our Lord and our Savior. We think of Jesus, we picture him as this good shepherd who like walks around in the fields around Galilee with a little lamb in his arms because that's what shepherds do, apparently. And we think, of course, of Jesus crying at the tomb of his friend Lazarus upon his death. And, and of course, there are pieces of truth in each of those pictures of Jesus. But they are at the same time incomplete. And in their incompleteness, they are soft. And I believe that if we walk through life with that kind of image of or understanding of Jesus, then we will not be prepared for the Jesus that we meet upon his return. I want you to listen, church, this morning to the way John in Revelation 19 describes the Jesus that we will encounter on that day. He says, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King kings and Lord of lords. This is, a, this is a long way from sweet, cuddly baby Jesus, is it not? Friends, the Bible says 
that when Christ returns, those who are outside of his kingdom, upon seeing the king in his glory and beauty as he returns, those who are outside of the kingdom will flee to the mountains only to find that the very mountains themselves have also fled in the face of the one who comes with blood on his robe and a flaming sword of justice coming from his mouth. This is not a sweet, cuddly, soft picture of Jesus that we see here or that we will see upon his return. And so we need a right picture who Jesus will be and what he will appear to be when he returns. And that's really what the three parables that Jesus told that Matthew records for us in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are all about. These are parables that are intended to prepare us for his return by giving us a clearer and truer picture of who Jesus is. They're parables that intend to teach us how to wait for his return and how to be ready for his return. Now last week, as we looked at the parable of the ten virgins together, we saw that being ready for the return of Jesus is really a matter of patiently waiting and watching for Christ to return. Today, in the final of these three parables and the last of Matthew's parables, the parable of the talents, we see that being ready for Jesus to return is a matter of diligently working until he comes again. And I thought as I was studying this week that the way the Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle put this 100 years ago was just so clear and helpful that I wanted to share it with you. Ryle, when he was talking about last week's parable in this week's parable, he just said, the story of the virgins calls on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. And so I'm grateful that today we can consider Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents, as we consider how the Lord calls us to work for his kingdom and for his glory until he returns. Let me pray, and then we'll begin in this great parable. Father, I pray this morning that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that through your word we may have a clearer, fuller, truer, deeper understanding of who your son is so that we may live now for his return and so that we may be prepared when he does indeed come again. We pray that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. The parable of the talents. This is a parable that um, is told in three scenes. The first two, they're very quick. They happen right one after another. Let's start in verse 14 with scene one. Jesus says, For it will be like a man, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. That's scene one. What do we know? We know that there is a man, a master, who is presumably a man of great, great wealth and means. And because he's a man of great, great wealth and means, he has servants, probably many servants. And of course, some of those servants would be the kinds of servants who 
washed the dishes and did the laundry and cooked the food and mowed the lawn. But others of those servants, because this man is so wealthy, would have been venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and people who were in charge of managing his money. To some of those servants, this master entrusts talents. To one, five talents. To another, two. To another, one. Scene two. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now let's make sure that we understand a few key details of this parable before we proceed to the third and longest of these scenes. First of all, the man who goes on the journey, the master in the parable, he is undoubtedly Jesus. When the third servant addresses him in the verses ahead, he's going to call him master, using a Greek word that is only used of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus, he's making it clear, and Matthew is making it clear in the way he writes this story down for us that the master in the parable is none other than Jesus himself. The servants in the parable, well, they're Jesus' servants, obviously. But what we learn from this parable, much like what we learn from the parable of the ten virgins or ten bridesmaids last week, is that not all of Jesus' servants are faithful servants. And so on some level, we realize right away that this parable It's intended to warn us that it really should in some way make us tremble because this parable acknowledges that not all who seem like they serve Jesus are true faithful servants of Jesus. In other words, it's possible to look like a servant of Christ, but in the end be found faithless. That's the tension that's running through this parable, and I pray the tension that's running through our minds and our hearts as we think about this parable this morning. Another thing we should consider at this point is this idea of talents. Now, it's not the first time in our series on Matthew's parables that we've encountered this Greek and Roman unit of measure. Usually, a talent was just a large measure of gold or silver. Some scholars would estimate that it was 80 pounds or more of gold or silver. If it was 80 pounds of gold, it would roughly be the equivalent, one talent would, of $900,000 today. And so we can comprehend the massive sums of money that this master is entrusting to his servants. To the servant who has five talents, I mean, he has more than $4 million of his master's money that has been entrusted to him. And so we recognize that this master, he's giving to his servants something that is precious, This isn't like when he goes on his journey and asks his servants to care for these talents. It's not like when I go on a journey and ask my neighbor to mow my lawn for me while I'm away. This isn't a tedious burden that he's given them. It's a privilege. And he has entrusted them with something that is incredibly precious, incredibly powerful, incredibly valuable. We also should recognize that this idea of a talent Well, it's an intentionally flexible idea. It refers first and foremost to a unit of measure and to money in Jesus' day. 
But Jesus could have talked about just simple sums of money, and he didn't, because he wanted us to understand the concept of talent more broadly, and we do understand it more broadly. In fact, the word talent is in our English dictionaries today precisely because Jesus used it here in this parable. And so this parable is about no less than, but certainly more than simply our money. It applies to every single resource that we have. It applies to our time. It applies to our relationships. It applies to our health, whether that health is good or bad. It applies to our opportunities in business, our opportunities in school, and of course it applies to our spiritual gifts. This parable, it applies to any resource that the Lord has given to you to steward. All of those resources are our talents. And that's why we should note the fact that it is hugely significant here that Jesus gives these talents to his servants. He wasn't obliged to give them anything. He didn't need to give them anything. Giving these talents to his servants, it is an act of grace. It is out of his good pleasure that he puts these things in the hands of his servants, both faithful and faithless. Which means that a secondary application of this parable is the fact that none of us should ever boast in the talents that we have. And none of us should ever bemoan the talents that we don't have in life. If we are people of resources, whether those resources are financial or time or energy or industry or whatever our resources might be, if we have resources, it's simply because Jesus in his grace has given us those resources. And we should never look down on those who have less than we do and boast in what we have or what we're able to accomplish. And at the same time, if we feel like we lack resources, if there are spiritual gifts that we really wish that we could have, if there is time that we really wish that we could have, if we wish that we had certain kinds of relationships in our lives, that we might use those relationships for the kingdom of Christ, we can certainly pray for those things, but we should never bemoan the fact that Christ hasn't given them to us already. We should never complain about what we lack, just as we should never boast in what we have. Because every single thing that we have, every ounce of talent in my body and in yours, every single gift in my life and in yours, they're gifts to us by Jesus himself. They're grace. We don't deserve any of them. All of them he's given to us freely because he elects to, because he chooses to. Isn't that a wonderful truth to rest in? Even though I don't believe it's the primary thing we should conclude from this parable, we can rightly conclude it here. I pray that we rejoice in that. It's a wonderful pleasure and privilege to have gifts that Jesus gives to us. It's also a responsibility. That is the main thing the parable is trying to press home to us. Responsibility becomes the story's focus in the third scene. We see two servants who work responsibly while the master's away and one who doesn't. Let's look at that third scene beginning in verse 19. Really, it's a third scene in two parts. The first part shows us the reward of the righteous. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, and I hope you'll notice this is identical to what the master said to the first servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the reward of the righteous servants. And really, I think we can single out three distinct pieces of that reward. The first piece of that reward is the praise-filled approval of the master. I think you can see that both in verses 21 and 23 to the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I'm not sure, church, how you personally are wired. I'm wired as a person who is, frankly, just, just very easily discouraged. I mean, I know in life some, some people who are eternal optimists, but I am not one of them. When I look at life, and especially when I look at myself, like I'm much more of a glass is half empty guy than a glass is half full guy. I'm much more apt to see problems than I am to identify progress. And I'm also almost always tempted to fixate on how I personally have contributed to those problems, even if I'm not really the source of the problem. And as a result, as I walk through life, I I find that I'm a person who is frankly just very easily discouraged. It's my confession to you this morning. And you know, I can actually always tell the sources of strongest discouragement in my life whenever anybody says something positive or affirming to me, right? The areas of my life where I am most insecure and most kind of wrecked by just like self-doubt and self-angst and fear and insecurity, the areas of my life where I'm most unstable, I can tell those areas because the second somebody says something nice to me, like that puts a wind in my sails that I didn't expect to have but that I desperately needed. But the problem is, that doesn't last for long at all. It's like I'm this, this fire that's almost out. And when somebody says something encouraging or kind or positive, that's like adding just a little tiny bit of kindling to that fire. And so the flame is stoked, but just for a moment. And then it dies down again and is almost out again. And so I can tell like those spaces where I'm prone to discouragement simply by the way I respond when people say kind and positive, encouraging things to me. Which is why I am so struck by the fact that what Jesus offers here, it's not the brief, momentary encouragement that comes from human praise. Now he's promising the eternal, praise-filled encouragement of the Lord of heaven. He's promising eternal praise from the one to whom all praise is due for eternity. He's not throwing kindling on 
a dying fire. He's promising an explosion of divine love and favor that comes to those who faithfully work with the talents that he gives them. He's promising the praise-filled approval of the master of all things. Don't you long to hear those words? Well done, good and faithful servant. The second reward of the righteous here, it's a, it's a bit counterintuitive, but he actually promises more work. You see that? In verses 21 and 23, he says to these two servants who have been faithful, he says, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. There's a principle there. To whom much has been given, much will be expected from him. But when much is expected and delivered, then even more is given. And so Jesus promises these faithful, righteous workers in his kingdom more work to do. I can't escape from this. I, the, the reality that there will probably be work for us to do in eternity, friends. I mean, Jesus is talking about his kingdom here when he has returned to his kingdom. He's talking about heaven. And I think from this parable, we can conclude that heaven will not simply be lounging by the pool all day while little angel babies feed you grapes. Right? I think there's going to be work to do in heaven. That work will be free from the curse of sin in Genesis 3, and so we will enjoy it the way that God intended us to enjoy work in the first place, and we will see perfectly how all of our work serves the glory of Jesus, and so we will delight in it all the more. But I think clearly what Jesus is saying here is that those who work faithfully and well will be rewarded with more opportunities to faithfully serve the master in eternity. And so work is a part of the reward that Jesus gives to his righteous servants. And the last part of that reward, it's the joy of the master. He says again to each of these servants, verse 21, verse 23, enter into the joy of your master. Now I've prayed and thought all week long about how I might try to encapsulate for you what the joy of Jesus might look like, or feel like, or taste like. And every possible way I thought of to illustrate that or to paint a picture of that, it just fell so far short of the reality that's here because, I mean, what we need to recognize is that, that Jesus is perfect and everything that he is and everything that he has, he is and has it in perfection which means that Jesus possesses joy in perfection, not an incomplete joy, not a partial joy, not a limited joy, not a temporary joy, an eternal perfect joy. That's the joy of the master. And Jesus says when you work faithfully for him in this life, he will call you when he returns to enter into that joy. He will share his perfect, complete, everlasting joy with you if you are faithful in this life. What an incredible reward he gives to those who responsibly steward what he gives them in this life. To those who work faithfully until he returns. Of course, we know that not every servant in the parable served faithfully. There is still one more. And so we must consider this morning the reward of the wicked servant. We see that beginning in verse 24. Jesus said, he also 
who had received the one talent came forward, saying, listen carefully, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, what you have is yours. You know, I find what the faithless servant says here to be a little bit bewildering. Like, he seems to me to have a fairly high view of the master, but still somehow it's not high enough. Like, he seems to be afraid of his master, but at the same time not really truly fear his master. And I think he, in that way, illustrates perfectly one of the most haunting ideas that the Bible puts before us. See, the Bible regularly puts before us, friends, the reality that having information about Jesus is not enough. No, I mean, the book of James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, even the demons have right information about who God is, yet they're still opposed to him because that information does not move them to faith and it does not move them to worship. And so for this servant, right information about who Jesus is, who the master is, it was just an excuse for his laziness. It did not stir him to faithful labor. And so we see Jesus punish him for that. Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. But then, just to be sure that we understand that this isn't an economics lesson, this isn't business school, this is an eternal reality. Jesus adds, verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the lazy, faithless servant's reward. Outer darkness. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. Not for the first time, Jesus alludes to the reality of hell in one of Matthew's parables. Now, one thing that I hope over the years that we have together, Life Church, to just sow before you on a regular basis is an explanation for why our modern world's opposition to the idea of hell just can't hold water, right? That, that's true. Our modern world, we love the idea that God is love. Like, give me a God who forgives people, who's loving and encouraging, and who sets a good example morally, and most modern people, especially in our culture, most modern people will get all on board with that God, right? A God who just is there to give you a big old warm hug and help you out when you need him. Modern people love that view of God, but but at the very same time, with just as much intensity, once you start to talk about a God who judges people, 
a God who holds people accountable for their sins, and a God who is willing to entertain an idea like hell where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. All of a sudden, when you start to say things like that, modern people are like, whoa, whoa, hold the phone, back up just a little bit. Because modern people don't have any room in their minds or their lives for a God of judgment who holds people accountable for their sin. But I just hope to lay before you so regularly the fact that that modern view of God, all loving, no wrath, that just can't hold water. It's not consistent with itself. It doesn't make any sense because a God who fails to hold people accountable, well, he can't seriously be considered a loving God to begin with, can he? Only a God who is indifferent and cold could look at sin, could look at wickedness in the world, could look at the injustice that exists in the world and just say, you know what, I'm going to let all that go and just love people. Right? Only a God with no actual love for his people could permit his people to harm one another and not hold them accountable for their wickedness. Now, someone who is truly loving, he will always be angry when someone else harms the ones that he loves. That's why the wrath of God and the love of God, they are necessary consequences of one another. But I can say even more about this because, like, on top of that, Like, you have to have led a pretty comfortable life not to want a God who punishes sin. I mean, you have to be insulated from pain and injustice and suffering in your life to not want God to hold people accountable. You can't have gone through any real serious stuff if your longing for God is just for him to love everybody and help people get along and hold hands in the end. No, because people who have endured suffering, people who have endured pain, People who have been exposed to the brunt of injustice in the world, they have in their hearts a longing for God to hold the perpetrators of those injustices accountable. They have in their hearts a longing for God to make all things right, not just to sweep sin under the rug, but to hold people accountable for their sin. I found so poignant the way one theologian a theologian who experienced in his own country and his, in his own life the horrors of genocide. I've always found so compelling the way that he said this. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home to give birth to the idea of a God who refuses to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will invariably die. What he means is simply that those who have seen real suffering will always long for real justice. They know that real justice, it is essential to the goodness of God. It's a necessary consequence of the love of God. And it's for that reason that the God of the Bible does judge the wicked. He does hold people, hold people accountable for their lives. He holds people, all people, accountable for the ways that they have stewarded the talents that he has given them. For those who love him and who therefore use their talents for him, there is eternal reward. The praise-filled approval of the master, the perfect, complete joy of the master. 
But for those who treat the master with contempt in this life and do not serve him, there is outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the question that matters most to church is which do you choose? With the balance of your life, by the way, none of us know what that balance is. None of us know the number of years or months or days or hours that remain in our lives. But with the balance of whatever the Lord gives you in this life, how do you respond to the Jesus who will one day return with a sword coming from his mouth? and the blood of his enemies on his robes. Whom will you serve with the talents that Christ has given you? Really, in the end, you only have two options. You can serve yourself. You can take everything that Jesus has given you in his grace, and you can use those things for yourself. You can use them to make yourself comfortable, to gain power for yourself, to gain security for yourself. You can use them to build a little kingdom for yourself so that everybody who comes into your orbit in that kingdom praises how glorious you are. You can use your talents for yourself. Or you can use them for the king of heaven and earth. For the son of God who loved you so fully that he endured the just punishment that you deserved in order to die on the cross in your place. You can use them for the son who treasures you so fully that he gave you every speck of talent you have in the first place. All so that you might one day have the opportunity to hear his praise-filled approval and enter into his perfect joy. In 1812, Adoniram Judson was the first foreign missionary to depart from America to build the kingdom of Christ in a country outside of our shores. And in 1812, when he was still just 23 years old, he set sail for the golden shores of Burma. And with him went only his wife, Anne. Adoniram and Anne had been married for all of 12 days when they set sail on that journey. And they knew the risks that they faced. They knew that it was likely that one or both of them would never return, and Anne, in fact, never returned to America after setting sail that day. She and her husband, they willingly gave their talents, and in the end, their lives, to see Christ treasured in Burma, among the people of Burma. I'm going to read to you an excerpt of the letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne, to, I'm sorry, to Anne's father, when he was asking him for her hand in marriage. So this is when they were still courting or whatever they would have been doing in 1812, when he wanted to ask Anne's father if she could marry him, if she could have his permission to marry him. I still think this is one of the most beautiful and compelling things that's ever been put on a piece of paper. This is what he said. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean 
to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Anne's father let her decide. And she said yes. She chose to use her life to spend her talents for the glory of Jesus. You. Jesus, we acknowledge here that you are worthy of our lives, of every ounce of talent that we have. And we pray that as we recognize that, that you would that you would move us to spend those talents for you, to give our lives for you, to hold nothing back in service of self to give all that you've given us back to you in service of your kingdom. And so we need you to show us, Jesus, the things that we are tempted to cling to, the things that we have that we're holding on to, that we're hiding in the dark with, praying, pleading that you just won't take those things from us. Show us, Jesus, what we have still to lay down for you. Show us the life that we have still to give in service of you in your kingdom. And I plead with you, Jesus, that you would use us to give you glory, that you would move us to live in this life with the right and full and clear vision of who you are, the master who will return in love and in justice, in righteousness and in wrath, in power and in glory to consummate your kingdom clear vision of you. May we live every one of the days that we have remaining for your glory. Pray that in your name, Jesus.